0: Really excited to welcome Pete Milliman to the Philacrossophy Podcast. Pete's the head coach at Johns Hopkins. And uh, really, it fired up to talk lacrosse with you, Pete. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man.
0: Um, okay, so as uh, I usually do with guests on this podcast for the first time, um, I would love to hear about your lacrosse journey as a player, as a coach. Um, and um, let's kick it off with you grew up in Rochester. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the sport, some of the influences on you and how you ended up getting to Gettysburg.
1: Um, sure. Uh, upstate lacrosse at its finest. I think, um, you know, I think what Rochester is a great place to be from. It's a great place to, uh, uh, to learn the game from some, from some fantastic coaches. And um, uh, I started playing in eighth grade. Um, I just, uh I don't know. I was playing soccer and football and things like that when I was younger. I think lacrosse was pretty big up there, but um, I didn't have any direct connection until um, just some, some friends were going to uh, to sign up for lacrosse that spring, and, and I got you know redirected down the hallway and, and ended up signing up for lacrosse, and um, you know probably probably changed the trajectory of, of where I was going in my life, and uh, and I I had no real um, you know plan to do that. It just uh, it just kind of happened in the hallway that day. Um, uh, you know probably didn't know where I was going to college until uh, midway through a postgraduate year at Canterbury Um, you know I bounced around a little bit when I was younger some different schools went to a few different high schools and uh, um, I went to a top star lacrosse camp at Gettysburg and got a a connection with coach Janzik at that at that event and and I think that ended up recruiting me because of uh, because of those conversations and um, ended up at Gettysburg playing for one of the best uh, that's ever coached. So I was fortunate there, and and you know maybe had that uh, camp not happened, uh, the the Gettysburg uh, opportunity might not open. So who knows? Top Star. I used to go to that camp
0: all the time. There's a lot of good uh, a lot of good players at Top Star. Yeah, right?
1: hey. one of the best midday floor hockey games you'll ever experience too. I remember that actually mm-hmm. Up,
0: down in Gettysburg and so um tell me what it was like you were a three-time all-american at Gettysburg you guys had some great success on the field Um, but um, what did you what did you learn there that you've kind of taken into your coaching career from coach Jancic as
1: as the way you learned how to
0: play as well as the way you now
1: mm-hmm. coach? yeah that's a there's that a loaded question there it's just so many things I mean there's there's a lot of Gettysburg alums that coach there's a lot of guys that you know, had a real successful careers, um, you know, outside of lacrosse after that, you just, you spend enough time around coach Janzik. He's a special man and teaches you a lot about life and, uh, in, in what you're, what you're working for and, and, and how to get a lot out of it. Um, I remember one of the real, um, you know, significant things he told me that it was probably just very matter of fact when he said it, but it stuck with me. And because I, I, you know, had been playing, I was a defenseman in high school and and I went to college as a defenseman. That's where I was recruited. And I just kind of transitioned over to offense, um you know, because of opportunity and, and just, just kind of happened. And um one of those early, uh you know, times when I was, I was, you know, hitting some struggles and trying to figure out how to manage playing offense without, you know, maybe I had, uh you know, some skills or an athleticism or, or whatever, but I didn't really have any understanding of what I was doing. I didn't really have any knowledge of how to play the position or whatever. And I, I kind of just asked him like, what happens if, you know, if, if you know, if I get kind of underneath the defenseman and I'm starting to go to the middle, but like, you know, I know if I go any farther, I'm going to get stuck. And, and, and I know if I get there and I can't, you know, get out, like I'm in trouble. And he just looks at me and he says, don't, don't go there. And I was like, Oh, all right. That makes sense. So that, that was, that was like one of the, the pillars I, I built that, like understanding around an offense. Like if you can't get out, don't go there. And, and it's still probably in a similar fashion, the way I explained that to guys here, like if you're going to go underneath your defenseman, if you're tr- going to try and get, you know, across the front, you got to make sure you can get all the way across the front, or you don't want to go there. You don't want to get to a point where you're halfway and you're like, well, now I got to dive or something, or I'm not going to get there. You know, I mean, make sure you have an exit route, make sure you have a, a way of, um, you know, securing the, the ball. If, if, it doesn't go the way you, you originally planned. I mean, probably a little more philosophical on this end of it, but you know, it, yeah. it, it, it made a, it made a dent at that point when I was, you know, an impressionable learning uh, you know, developing player. And so that's what I stick with. Wait a minute. So you were, you were a defenseman
0: coming into Gettysburg and you made a transition to attack mm-hmm. while you were there. That's pretty I went cool. to midfield
1: as a freshman and then attack as a sophomore and it, you know, at that point, I had played lacrosse for a few years and I didn't play for one of the years in high school because I, um, I did an ACL in, in high school. And so it just it, at that point, like I think I was still kind of like a brand new player anyhow. So it just, you know, I showed up and all I, I well, I played a little bit of both in high school because I was, you know, one of those like long sticks that played man up. And then I'd switch and play short stick for a little bit and go back and cover a guy close. and Yeah, that's
0: awesome. It's pretty rare. You, you hear of a lot of people's poles getting longer.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's one of my uh, one one of my favorites is uh, Sean Nadelin and I played uh, on the same Empire State team and um, we played against each other in high school and he was a midfielder and I was a defenseman we were guarding each other and you know I was guarding him and then you know a bunch of years later we kind of reversed roles and he would be guarding me interesting awesome. process
0: that's cool well I I was going to say I was shocked to hear you were a defenseman because I've seen you up in Placid uh, twenty nineteen pre pandemic. So you scored walking a few around, guys, coming around. Well, you know, <laughs> it's all relative.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, just trying um, not to run
0: <laughs> uh, with your box helmet and all, but um, and then you <laughs> got a chance to play um for the Rochester Rattlers and win an MLL championship. And what was your role with a Rattler?
1: Uh, just trying to get on the field. I mean, I was, I was chasing the dream. I was trying to play, um, you know, I, I think I fit in with the roster and fit in with the group and, and, you know, w- was, just happy with my role that like, if I got a chance to dress, I would, if I got a chance to get in and uh, make an impact. Um, but the, that, that, those teams, those teams were pretty impressive and, oh God, and I yeah. wasn't quite the athlete that they were. And, and so I was, I was really happy with my role. I mean, I was, I was always challenging myself and I was always pushing. I just, I, I mean, I tried for years. I wanted to, I wanted to, really wanted to play at that level. And uh, you know, but uh, you know, it was, there was a, a midfield with Casey Powell and Joe Walters and, um, you know, junior at attack. And it just, there's those teams were really, really, really stacked. And so it was, it was hard. I, I was, I was always fighting it. So um it was a great experience. It was really life-changing probably in much of my coaching career as anything, because of how exactly. much i learned. learned, um, you know, learning, you know, that the, the professional level is so unique and such, such a different animal from, from college and, and any other level, like watching guys come together and, and, you know, bring in different, get different sets And it's probably like this in every sport, but when you get to professional, it's just, it's just different from what you've ever done, what you've ever understood. And, you know, that one was so unique for me because I got to experience, um, you know, the struggles with a team for a few years and then find the success and realize like the catalyst to that. And, and it was so much built around the chemistry of, of, of the guys figuring it out and the guys fitting together. And like the one person that makes a difference in this group and you um, you know, I mean, we had Brody Merrill and Greg Granley facing off. And it was, I mean, it was really, Brett Queener was in the net with, uh, with Mike Love. And it was really, really an awesome, um, you know, group of people to be around. And, um, you know, the locker rooms were were probably as, uh, as, as amazing of an environment as I've as, as experienced. Oh, man, I bet. Those
0: teams were so star-studded. Um, before we move on to the coaching piece, I just want to hear a couple of thoughts on the things that you learned or noticed or were amazed by from guys like Joe Walters or Casey Powell or junior?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, Watching, watching the team uh, find success, moving uh, players back and forth, up and down. I mean, between Casey, Joe Walters and junior, I watched all of them at certain points be pushed back up to midfield because they would, they were, they were producing more. They were fitting better with the team or, you know, Colin Doyle was a box forward. He was on that team and all of a sudden he's coming out of the box and, you know, we're standing on the sideline in between, uh, you know, shifts in, the, in one of his, I think it was his first game. And he was kind of asking some questions because he wasn't really sure. He didn't have a lot of experience with, with run out of the box and, and the familiar. I'm sure he played field before uh, sparingly, uh, if that, but, but probably was, was at attack most of the time. And so, you know, with the the quality of the the, the guys on that roster, it was really just, you know, how many different times can we throw this at the wall until it starts to make sense? And, and, uh, you know, the buy-in from the guys and realizing that, you know, we just wanted to win, you know, where do we find that success? And I remember we traded and, and got Brett Bucktooth on the team and, and, you know, he was coming out of the box on the second midfield line for, for most of the season, just because the first was, I think, Gavin Prout and Joe and, and Casey and, um, <laughs> just you know, it's a unique mixture. And, and I'm like, I just if I can get in the game, if I can get on the field, I'll be happy, you know. I mean, I just want to be in the mix. So um it, it it was interesting watching like the watching the brains work together, um, you know, with different degrees of experience, different backgrounds, different skill levels, and and trying to make it, you know, happen on the field and and in the in the you know, the short windows of time before games, not like five straight days of practicing, you know, your man up for, for 10, 15 minutes a day. Like we, you know, you ran it a couple of times and then you got to make an adjustment in the middle of the game and, and call a shot and who's going to do it. And let's see if we can execute it. And, and and most of the time, that's not the way it works. It's just, you know, what, what comes after that. But um, you know, that, 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 that chemistry and that creativity is just so unique there. The creativity of the guys that you just mentioned, are just so off the charts. I mean, things that you mm-hmm. probably at
0: practice, you would see stuff
1: that you just after- <laughs> he was on that attack too. It was, it was, uh, a, a, a really, really special group, uh, of, of, of offensive players too, all the way around that. It was cool. I had a chance
0: to coach MLL for one season and and it was Randy Stotts and Mark Matthews and Kevin Rice and just same thing. Like you're just seeing stuff every single day that you're just like, Oh my God, it's mm-hmm. insane. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, um, RIT, Siena, Princeton were your early assistant coaching uh, stops along the way and you still play on the RIT um um classic
1: team I think or so, there's a, there's wondering. a few RIT guys it's, it's it. probably more commonly it's a, it's like a Rattlers alumni team it's oh, just exactly. a lot of guys from gotcha. upstate that we played with there's a lot of ex Rattlers uh, Reggie and um oh yeah Joe Smith and Saul Bliss has played at times and uh uh, okay. Pat Dutton and, uh, you know, Wilkie, Wilkie. So Wilkie and Kuhn, uh, Jay Kuhn are the RIT coaches. And, um, you know, there's NAS coaches, there's, there's the the whole, the whole spectrum. It's mostly okay. just upstaters.
0: <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, um, those stops and, um, kind of your, what you learned from
1: the coaches and from the environments at RIT mm-hmm. and at Princeton along the way. So, My first coaching gig was at RIT and that was, you know, I was working full-time in Rochester and I just kind of felt like I wanted to try coaching. I wasn't really sure. I was 27 or 28. I'd been out for a few years and I just wasn't sure um, if I was getting any traction anywhere else, tried to get a real job and and do all sorts of other things and didn't really like any of it. So um, the head coach at RIT was Gene Peluso and he was, uh, he was actually my JV lacrosse coach when I was in ninth grade. So I knew him. And, uh, and I reached out and, um, he, I asked him if I'd come volunteer and he said, yeah, yeah. So, um, probably the most significant piece of that, that learning, um, uh, experience was, was seeing the field now from the sideline. I'd never, you know, I'd never coached. So I didn't know visually what things looked like from, you know, from that standpoint. I remember when I first started doing it, I would go stand at the end line when I would, when I would talk to the offense and I was like, it's just easier for me to see it. Cause this is, you know, my perspective. And then he's like, yeah, it's cool, but you're going to stand over here in game. So get over here. Um, so I had to start, start moving my myself around the field to, to see it from different angles. But, um, uh, that was pretty unique. Um, I think my, uh, my second year I went to Siena, I actually worked with Brian Brack. He was the head coach there. Um, and, and we had a pretty good year, you know, it's, it, it, I think it was one of the first years that, um, you know, it's his second or third year when, um, you know, he put a lot of time into the recruiting and, and we started to see, um, you know, that come to fruition. And, and that was probably the, um, you know, the biggest takeaway is was just how hard of a worker he was and how grueling he was, you know, going at that, that recruiting game. And, you know, he, had, he had me calling guys and I was like, I'm not sure he's interested. He's like, you keep calling him because we might get him. And I'm like, okay. And, and, you know, it was like a, a, a real eye opener for me at that point because I'd never recruited and I didn't really understand the, um, you know, the, the tactics to it. And, uh, you know, he, he's obviously found a lot of success and, and gotten a lot of great players at uh, at places that, um, you know, like Siena, which was, which was kind of, uh, uh, you know, off the map at the time, you know? And so, um, that was a, 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 real big takeaway for me in that year. And, uh, I moved back home for one more year in Rochester and, uh, uh, coached at RIT and, uh, one more season and then, and then got the job at, at Pfeiffer and went down to North Carolina sight unseen just, uh, Heard there was a school in North Carolina, I could coach it, so went
0: great experience. Um, going from assistant coach to head coach, too. I mean, you know, being the uh person that has to make the decision instead of make suggestions. Um, yeah, probably prepared, prepared you really well. What was that? What was that like down there? And what did you sort of take from that?
1: Uh, that was um, I that was that was a I mean, I, I probably could say this about a lot of different things in my in my career, but it was a, a pretty significant um, you know a part of it and 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 really life changing not just for my path but like my understanding of how to be successful. I mean, that was it was really, really a tough environment to to be successful at. and and the school, you know wasn't really subtle about it. They just wanted you to to do a good job and get some kids on campus, you know, like they wanted to make sure that you were filling fill in the roster so they could fill some beds. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't in the office every day. Like, how do we win a championship here? It was, is really like, you know, great, you're here. So let me know if, uh, you know, if, if, if you can get a whole team, cause outside of that we're going to cancel across. And, uh, um, I obviously had higher aspirations than that. So I was, I was really, really grinding, but, um, you know, that was, that was, that was where I, I probably cut my teeth is, is as a coach in, in every way. Um, The first few were were really just to get feelers out and see if this is something I wanted to do. But once I got there, it was, you know, it was sink or swim on the spot. You know, you figure out how to get kids on campus, figure out how to coach them, figure out how to keep them out of trouble, figure out how to, you know, get them through college, um, you know, figure out the budget for for scholarships because I'd never done that before. And, you know, I had to hire a staff. um, I mean, just that whole that whole thing was um, everything it it was everything I, I had a i had a phenomenal um a leader uh, i had an athletic director who um taught me as much about about being a coach as anything and and a lot of it was that he he was upfront with me he's like this is this is a uh, as difficult of a job as you'll do because i know you're going to try and win here and he's like that's probably as hard as anything um and uh when you leave here after a few years, like there's there's probably nothing about coaching lacrosse that's gonna be foreign to you. You're gonna to have to do everything yourself. And I did, you know, I had to I had to 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 cut field got cut grass and paint fields and and um you know I'd drive buses and and like you know, literally nothing would nothing would move forward if, if you weren't making it happen. So um there was no budget for anything. Anything we bought, we had to create the money for it. So uh yeah, it was just like I said, it was, it was really different. It's, that's honestly
0: an amazing experience, um, as opposed to those that have kind of grown up with all of the backing. It, it's it's not necessarily totally better or worse, but it is a good experience to, to just literally have to figure it all out to have success. Yeah.
1: It's not easy, but I wouldn't give it back after, after having experienced it. I remember hearing somebody, I don't remember who was telling me this. It might've been like Fred Opie or something a hundred years ago, like like doing a, 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 um, a talk uh, and he um, was talking about going over to Japan and seeing them like, um, you know, get out, um, you know, paint buckets and everything to try and have a club practice. Like there was like, they would show up for practice. And there were no lines on the field. He's like, so when they get there, the first thing they got to do is line the field, but they line it in chalk because when they're done, they got to wipe all the lines off because the next team that comes in may not pl- be playing the cross, or obviously they aren't. And 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 I remember always thinking about that one, like we're we're gonna be able to create a lacrosse environment, you know, from thin air anywhere we go, uh as long as we can clean it up afterwards. And and you know, there was really not a lot permanent um, you know, at Pfeiffer where I was that like that 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 always resonated with me. Like we were sharing our fields with you know all the other teams that were there, and there was only you know, one and a half fields. So, you know, we had to be respectful of what we did. If the field was wet that day, we couldn't play on it. So I had to go find another place to do something and figure out what we were going to do there. We were writing practice plans based on the space we had for about a month and a half of the year. I know the feeling. It was the same at Denver. Exactly. And
0: resourcefulness <laughs> becomes uh, a strength, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's good. It's fun. Some people don't like it. I actually kind of like problem solving. So
1: you probably did. I, it, it, there was a lot of things that there's a lot of drills we probably did in practice that were created because the spacing is all that it would allow. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably took versions of those into, into what I'm still doing today because it just, I mean, even, even a couple of years ago, we'd be up in Ithaca and there'd be a day where it's, it's snowing so bad. Like if we shovel, we're only going to be able to get half the field before it's covered again. So let's just shovel a small area so we can get like one drill. What's the most important drill? What do we got to work on? Let's plug it in here. And you know, it's all kind of derived from the same concept. Like, what do you have that you can get done, and what's most important?
0: So, next stop was Cornell, right? Um, how'd you get up there? Uh,
1: next stop was Princeton. I left oh, Pfeiffer for Princeton. Princeton. Um, was there for one year, and uh, and then the Cornell opportunity presented itself, and uh, and then went to Ithaca.
0: Awesome. So let's just um, let's talk a little bit about Cornell. What you learned um, as an assistant, and then as, a, as you transitioned to a head coach, um, love to hear about that. What an amazing experience um, you guys. You know, rolled into um incredibly proud tradition and and um mm-hmm. uh, and
1: held it up. Yeah, that uh the tradition and the um the experience and the understanding and, and learning a new culture and a and a very unique one at that and um you know just getting used to uh what it took to be successful at Cornell. Maybe that was the most significant thing about that experience was was realizing that you know what was successful at Cornell is not necessarily um, what, what fits everywhere. It's, it was unique to that, that environment is unique, unique to that program. And, um, a big part of my job was to learn that, um, before I started, you know, running around thinking I was, I was doing all sorts of important things. If they didn't fit, um, you know, for the guys in that locker room, if they didn't fit that school, if they didn't fit that, uh, you know, that culture, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work. So, um, a lot of that was, you know, the coaches that had laid the groundwork before me. And a lot of that was the you know, the guys in the locker room and, and, and realizing that they were, you know, they were a really committed bunch. They were a hardworking group and, um, you know, their success wasn't an accident. And, uh, you know, you, you could see a lot of that in the way that they worked, um, you know, day to day and, and, you know, got a chance to spend uh, seven years with, uh, with the strength coach, Tom Holly He's one of the best coaches I've ever met. Um, you know, maybe at anything, he's just, just a phenomenal uh, uh, teacher. And so, um, a lot of those those lessons came from um, you know maybe that same concept we're, we're talking about here is like what what you know what fits here what works here like you only got this much space or this much room you know uh, you know t- equipment to work with whatever it is like how do you still train your guys because um, you don't always have everything that you need at your disposal and and very few places even have that so um, you know it was a Really, really uh, important in shaping. I think my my opinion of, of you know how to um, how to train the team, how to how to you know you know build things a certain way, how to how to recruit to it. You know you you couldn't miss with the recruits so that where they wouldn't fit as well. It's not. Um, it's not like Cornell was a hard place to convince people of it is a, is a great school, but you know, like everywhere it's, this is not a place for everybody. It's just, it's, it's just different, uh, you know, depending on what you're really looking for. And a lot of people think they know what they want. Um, you got to try and get through that. You got to try and filter that out. So, you know, what they, what they actually want is, uh, is, is really what's peeking through.
0: So you started off as a defenseman, you became an attackman, you were a head coach where you obviously are responsible for both sides of the ball at Cornell. You started off as a defensive coordinator and moved into the offensive coordinator role. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, having an expertise on both sides of the ball has shaped you as a coach?
1: Uh, as a head coach, I, I mean, I don't know if if everybody gets that opportunity as a, as a head coach to be a coordinator on both sides. I would, I would say it's great. Um, but, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm more of an offensive coach than a defensive. And I'm probably always going to lean towards, um, you know, getting the best defensive coach in the, in the world. I can, I mean, I'm going to want the best offensive coach I can as well, but you know, I can, I can trust myself on the offensive end of the field a bit more than I can defensively. So, um, you know, that, that part, uh, I think maybe that's just, that's just my background. That's just, that's just what's in me, but um, you know, coaching defense for a few years was, was a real challenge in itself. I mean, it was, a, it was a challenge, um, you know, because I hadn't, I'd spent some time uh, working on defense with Greg Raymond at, at Princeton. And, um, but I also got to learn a lot from Bates uh, offensively. And so when I got to Cornell, um, I was, I wasn't, you know, planning on coaching defense, the way things worked out, that's where I ended up. And, um, I, I'm glad that I was, I was kind of thrown into that, you know, there was, there was a lot of struggle there, but there was some success. And so it's, it's part of the learning process, you know, you, you fail, um, you know, at your own mistakes and then, and then you learn how to, how to build from that. It's a, uh, it a big part of it.
0: I think it's so important to have that balance. I mean, um, by the time you get to your level, you're, you're going to have to know both sides of the ball anyways, but I think a lot of times for a lot of the coaches that are listening here, their youth or high school coaches, And if you put too much of a focus on one side of the ball, it makes it impossible to grow on that side. You really have to be um, uh, aware and knowledgeable Mm -hmm. and proficient in both sides of the ball,
1: I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm going to take the, you know, viewpoints and the opinions of my staff members is, is, is valuable as anything. And, and regardless of whether I'm, I'm coaching um, defense or offense, regardless whether we're talking about defense or offense, like, you know, we're all talking the same game. I mean, your opinion yep. on how to, how to defend a pick play below GLE, in my opinion, might be different. But at the end of the day, like, there's probably a million different ways to do a lot of stuff. It's just a matter of whether we can coach what we want to do effectively enough that yep. the guys understand it and they can execute it. So, you know, I mean, you could, you could probably sample five teams right now across NCAA that do certain things really, really successfully and all vastly different. And that doesn't mean that there's one way to play, you know, a pick below GLE, like we're talking about. Doesn't mean there's, I had an alum in here yesterday from, from 1980, Mike Federica, and he was asking me about covering on ball and and he was, you know, do you, do you take away the strong hand or do you, you know, I, he's like, I always thought you put your, your inside foot upfield and take away the middle. And, you know, Tony Seaman told me that you play their opposite hand. And I'm like, what's interesting that you said, I mean, they're both, they both can be right depending on what you're looking for. And, and, and he was kind of, I think he was looking for the answer, like what's, which one's right. And I'm like, it depends on what you're doing. And so it was just nice to have a, you know, a conversation about that. But I think that opens up the um, the door there. Like it's, it's depending on what works for you. I think there was a lot of things I did as defensive coach at, at Cornell that I probably wouldn't do again, even if they were successful at the time or, um, you know, things that I didn't know about at the time. I wish I, I wish I did. And um, if we had, you know, found success at certain things at, at the time so it, it it's always you know kind of changing and evolving
0: um before we move on to uh, talk about hopkins we've got to talk about jeff teat we talked a little bit before <laughs> i'm just absolutely mesmerized i will like literally watch that guy play every single time i can i don't care what he's doing i'd probably watch it um can you just talk a little bit about him as a player? um and what you kind of learned from him and 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 even how it may have sort of shaped the way you coach offense uh, or not
1: yeah there's no doubt it, it it shaped the way I coach offense because I think that the offense that we started to run there was was developed a lot of ways to to fit um you know what we could do with Jeff and uh I thought it was you know just kind of a product of of you know, his addition and some of the other guys that were fitting in and it seemed to make sense. And so we just developed an offensive uh, system, um, you know, from that. But the one that we originally created was, was, you know, not exactly, um, not quite even close to uh, to what it was after, you know, a year or two, because um, we, we really let those guys maybe teach us a little bit more about how it should work and how it should run. And, um, you know, that's a, a big takeaway from, from Coach and Jeff is that, you know, you can, you can feel your value as a coach and then you can realize like, uh, as not a lot of stuff I'm going to tell him that he he's not aware of, I can always coach him and always push him. Like my job is to make him as, uh, into the best version of himself. But, um, that doesn't necessarily mean I have to know more about the game than him or, or have a, you know, a better sense of it or be smarter than him. Um, I can let him teach me some of those things too. And I think, um, because of his nature and because he's a humble kid and because he's a, you know, he's a great team, team player, teammate. Um, I think a lot of the guys developed that relationship with, you know, I mean, he, he's um, he's just a good teammate, he's a good team ball player. And uh, then when you're kind of growing it together, when you're kind of developing it together, you, you realize like you're, you're always kind of teaching each other stuff and come up with new ideas. And uh, um, you know, I, I thought it was a, it was a great environment. It was, it was something that, you uh, you know, obviously I, it, it's, it's a, you know, special treat to be able to coach a, a player of that ability, but um, you know, just really proud of the, the, the way, you know, the whole group kind of learned and, and played well together because of that. And that's, you know, maybe the biggest takeaway in, in the process moving over to Hopkins is, is, you know, how do we develop this in a way that makes sense for us? Cause I don't want to write an offense that I ran for somebody else. I don't want to write an offense that, uh, Um, you know, we'll work somewhere else and and with other people and and tell you guys you have to run it. Like this whole thing will change week to week, uh, until we figure it out. But I just wanted to work at Johns Hopkins. I'm, you know, if I was at Pfeiffer, I'd want it to work at Pfeiffer. I mean, at one point I had Rob Hope playing lefty attack, and he's one of the best defensemen in box. And I had him there because he was the only lefty I had on offense. So I put him, (laughs) put him at attack, and that we ran an offense with a guy that doesn't shoot that much, but he was great at ground balls.
0: (laughs) When you, when you, um, think about Jeff T before we move on. Um, what made him such a great shooter? What made him such a great passer and what was it about his off ball that was impressive to you? Uh,
1: uh you know I think that the the two characteristics of of Jeffrey's game that that probably are are so unique to his his success um, I would say, or his, his level of uh, competitiveness, like how hard he's competing and how much he's trying to win at everything. Like the, you know, he, he plays in practice as hard as, as anybody. Um, And it's not just because he's, you know, trying to embrace that challenge in practice or because he knows his responsibilities because he's competitive. He wants to win. And then outside of that, I would say, you know, his his patience and his degree of composure um, in situations where, you know, he just has a has a different degree of of um, you know I would say security that there's something at the other end of this like I don't need to yeah. make it happen right now I don't need to force it um, it's a lot of it's a lot of fundamental training from his coaches it's it's a lot of you know uh, you know just being around you know his father and 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 a lot of great you know lacrosse people in his life that have, have taught him the game the right way and he understands it but you know it's just it's, it's just like a, a I've said this before it's like a devastating uh a agonizing degree of patience when you're playing against it like it's just he's, he doesn't get flustered he doesn't get uh, um you know bothered he's, he doesn't make selfish plays he just you know keeps the game going and if it doesn't work you know you dump it in the corner you get back and um you know that doesn't always resonate with a lot of people it doesn't always you know not not everybody can understand it that way and and i think from that is probably where you get you know a, a higher a higher level of of uh, understanding of passing the ball and finishing the ball and shooting. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that can be derived from that But
0: Yeah. Amazing. You just can't speed him up. <laughs> you know, you can
1: try yeah, to. Not but, very easily. It's, it's, oh, it's hard. So. All
0: right. So shifting gears here. Um, let's talk about John Stockman's across. Um, obviously you take over the team in the middle of the pandemic in a situation where you didn't really get to have very much in-person time with them. Um, just talk a little bit about the culture you're trying to create um, with Hopkins, as you start to build this, um, program,
1: um, in a new way. Sure. Um, I mean, maybe the first most important thing, uh, in this, in this process was, was learning, um, the identity of Johns Hopkins lacrosse for myself. You know, I, am the first uh, coach here on staff in a long time that, uh, um you know wasn't an alum and so I didn't play here. I hadn't hadn't you know come through these uh these halls and and uh I didn't know a lot of the alums. I, I knew some of them just just being in the business. But um a lot of it for me was um you know it was a learning process like how do I get to know Johns Hopkins Lacrosse better and and how do I get to uh, have a better understanding of of you know where the success has always come from here. How can I you know reach back and learn from uh you know Coach Scott, uh Coach Check and and a lot of these guys who you know just just you know, monuments in our, in our program, icons in our sport, um, you know, what was, what was so successful back then, you know, was it, was it that, uh, cause there was a point in time where, you know, Johns Hopkins wasn't the most storied program in the history of the sport, um, you know, it was a long time ago, but, you know, at some point there was, there was a change here and there was some success. So, um, I think first to develop a culture, I needed to understand a bit more about, you know, the program I was coaching and, and, you know, the people that had found success uh, here before I, I remember having a, a great um, group zoom last year with um, uh, a, a bunch of guys who were on the 78 79 80 championship teams that that had won three in a row and um, it was uh, it was really eye-opening to, to get to hear some of those uh, those stories and those you know points of emphasis that weren't um, you know, just cookie cutter answers from everybody else. Like, you know, you got the best players. We worked harder than everybody else. I mean, you know, you won three championships. You're going to say those things. You worked harder than everybody else. But, you know, hearing those guys talk about how much they embraced, um, you know, the, the the players on the team that didn't play as much, or you know, the guys that uh, you know supported and did make the varsity, so they were team managers, and just just different things about um, about having a great culture. And, and they talked about how coach. Uh, Coach Chick used to value, uh, you know, everybody on that roster, you know, so much he would go through that roster once a week and just talk about every single guy on it, regardless of whether they played or not. And, and what can we do make that guy better? And I remember hearing that. I was like, that's a, that's a great, you know, just like a weekly plan. Like, let's just, let's just touch everybody's name on the roster and, and, you know, what can we do to make that guy better? Um, and, and ultimately you just want to build the most successful culture, the most successful group that you can not, not just collect the best players and, um, you know, put them out there and hope that they win. Like it's, it's gotta be about the environment that they're competing in and um, you know, how they cultivate success um, themselves, not, not necessarily from the top down. Let's
0: talk a little bit about um, your philosophies on player development. Um, how big of an emphasis is this for you and, and how do you guys kind of go about it? And what do you look at from mm-hmm. the defensive side versus the offensive side?
1: Well, I mean, I think generally you, um, To answer the question, it's my it's it's massive. It's 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 it's, you know, it's if I was just trying to grab guys that I thought were going to be as good today as they're ever going to be in four years, then um, there's not a lot of chance I'm going to be highly successful unless I just, you know, hit every single home run uh, in the recruiting game possible and get the best players. I I think ultimately, like you've got to get you've got to get the best out of the guys that you have and you've got to teach them to play uh, a game that a fits for them. Uh, and, and B, has, has the ability to keep growing and, and keep developing because um, the game's going to change to them. Some guys change shapes while they're here. They change understandings. They change positions. Um, so it's, it's just kind of this ever-evolving process, like how do we keep developing guys? So, um, you know, this, this uh, was a lot of uh, the, um, the philosophy that we were developing a, a few years back, um, and I spent a lot of time talking with this staff about it, like how do we break the game down into the simplest forms fundamentally um and then we teach those um which a lot of a lot of that concept came from from uh, chris bates and, and greg at uh, at princeton but um you know fundamental development fundamental skill development fundamental understanding and and uh, and team development um so kind of block practice into into you know segments that are built around the simplest version of the game at at, at, at any one time like the simplest concept and if we can teach fundamentals um in a non-competitive way first, like you know, like actually instruct it, and then combine uh, the competitive elements, and then they learn that that concept. They learn that fundamental, um, you know, experientially. So we want to, uh, you know, bring that whole process, uh, you know, together. Um, so it goes from you know our opinions, our vision, you know, our evidence base uh, you know, learning component for them that, that they can end up learning the process, learning the concept by winning it or losing it. And, uh, um, you know, we, like we can do a ground ball drill and we can talk about, you know, um, how to compete for the ground ball, how to win the space, how to win, um, how to, how to separate once you win it, how to get the ball off the ground, how to compete. If you don't, if you're not ball side, how to get ball side, if you're not, um, you know, what's the, what's the best challenge you can present for the guy that, that does have ball side so that even if he does win it, he has a, has a tougher exit. And then after that, we can just, you know, try and recreate those scenarios enough times that, that they're going to come away with a, a, an experience that, that teaches them, you know, well, if I keep going to the head of the stick and I'm getting boxed out every time, then I'm not, I'm not winning. And, and, you know, You can keep doing it because maybe you're fast enough or you're long enough, but you're not always going to be that in those situations. At some point, you've got to take the the highest percentage route uh, to the to the win. And and the more often you you learn that the right way by winning and losing, um, I think the more it sinks in. I love that. Making
0: things competitive is the truest teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What would you say your percentage in practice would be of competitive stuff versus non-competitive stuff?
1: Um, I would say it's probably 50, 50, maybe, maybe, um, it, it, skews a little bit more towards competitive stuff, the farther into the season we get, cause we don't teach as much of the specifics of, of the, you know, the fundamentals that we're doing early on, um, we'll, we'll continue to reiterate them and, and maybe they'll, we'll, we'll redevelop some ideas. Maybe there'll be a new thing. Um, but I only want them to go through things so many times, um, you know, with me standing in front of them, telling them what to do. I would prefer that they experience it, you know, for themselves. And then we can steer it from there. We can adjust it. I mean, I, I would, you know, a 50, 50 is probably inaccurate. I would say maybe that's just like early on. Cause probably early on there's less competitive stuff and more uh, yep. of the teaching element, So it, it just transitions over, but, um, you know, I, I want practices to like, I, I, this is, this is maybe one of the easy takeaways. Like, I don't, I don't like practices within any blocks that are smaller than 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. Like, I'm not going to do anything for six minutes. I'm not going to do anything for 11 minutes. Like I want to do things it, like the, the, the original thought was if we could teach our team to be good at one thing today, like what's one thing, can we teach them how to run into the dodge? Well, how many different ways can we teach that? How can we set that up how can we manipulate that scenario so many different ways so that every time they get the ball, they're running into a dodge and attacking, um, you know, the, the most desired uh, space, direction, whatever the way we want to. And that way, at the end of today, everybody should be better at that concept. Like if that was the point, um, but we obviously want to be able to do more than one thing in a day. What's the max of things that we can do in a day that we're actually going to get better at? Because it's not it's not 25, you know, yeah. it's probably not even 10. Right. You know, like, let's, let's pare it down. Like, let's, what if we did it, everything for a half an hour, if I, if I, you know, as an experiment, like, what if we went into practice, and we coached a team, and we only broke two hours into four blocks, we can do at at one thing for a half an hour, we can do that four times each, you can, you can teach it for a few minutes, then you compete at it, then you go back to teaching it, then you go back to competing at it. And, and at that, if you do that for a couple weeks, like, would you be better off than if you went through everything every day, 10 minutes in each? And my my thought was that the more we can focus on less things and spend more time getting better at them, we'll probably develop our team and develop our individual players better because they'll learn the concepts. You're not going to get enough reps if you do it for six minutes, especially when you have 50 guys on the field. So again, I don't know if it's right or not. I just, that's, that's one that felt to me like we were starting to make a difference. And, um, you know, I thought last year there was some shifting in the way we were practicing through the middle of the year and it started to, We started to see a little bit better results from it. And, you know, towards the end of the year, I think our practices looked maybe simpler than they did early on. And uh, it just took us a while to to make more sense of it.
0: I love it. I think it's really interesting. And I think one of the things it does when you make things competitive and you add context to it, you can have an emphasis of one thing, but they're actually learning a lot of things at one time. And even though you might not get 25 things that you can emphasize in a day, but when you're playing something competitive, Mm -hmm. where it's up to them to figure it out, Um, they're solving problems and playing in context and actually learning how to compete and win. Um, and they're learning a lot of things along with that, those, those smaller points
1: of emphasis. Yeah. I think what you said in there is, is maybe, um, one of the, one of the lost concepts here is that like, want to teach them how to learn to win. Like, I I don't want you to do the drill. I want you to, the way I want you to do it. I want you to do the drill the way that you want to do it. That wins. So when we're setting up drills, I want them to have very, very simple instructions. I want to have like one or two measurables for what we're looking for here. And if I say like we're going to do a ground ball drill, and you have to go through the backhand if you don't get the ball, um, then everybody has to go through the backhand if they don't win the ball. And anybody that goes over the head gets you know negative reinforcement, whatever it is. one push up, a half a lap, or you just get told you didn't do it, you didn't do it right. Um, if we're going to, you know, try and build on that uh, teaching concept, that fundamental the right way, I need to simplify everything else around it. So they're not like, um, so it's not starting with off a of ball movement. So not six guys in there. There's not, you know, they're not coming from all, they're not playing two different positions. There's not a pick involved. Like if we're going to teach that concept, like I have to start with that piece. And then how do I get into that environment as competitively impossible without having all the other interference of like, you know, multiple other things. So sometimes it's, it's recreating that one-on-one two-on-one, whatever, whatever that ground ball situation is, as many different ways as you can while keeping it still as simple as possible. So um, I, I just, I like to have drills that like when I put the ball in and I blow the whistle, it's live. The rest is you learning the drill and I'll shape it. it. I'll, I'll, I'll put cones up. I'll, I'll change the number of people. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll put the on offensive, whatever I can do to, 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 to manipulate it without telling you like the first thing I want you to do is set a pick, then throw it behind X, and then he's going to carry it over here. And then and then we're gonna then you're gonna have to work on this. Like because then then the whole thing is, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem authentic to me.
0: I agree. It's it's kind of the difference between a drill and a, a game like situation. And when you think about game-like, um, I've been thinking a lot about this word. And I feel like game-like is a little misunderstood because sometimes it's like, well, let's just simulate a a little portion of a game. But I think game-like has a lot to do with the lack of control from a coach. Because in a game, you as the coach, you can have some voice control, but really it's out of your control. And so therefore Mm -hmm. to make a game-like, it must be competitive and it must be up to the players to begin to figure things
1: out. Yeah, if I want to work on pick play from the wing, but I want to work on the pick going over the top, I can't tell the guy with the ball you have to go over the top every time because then the defense is just going to play over the top and then he's not going to be able to get there and they're just going to keep running into each other for the because I tell him to. Yeah. But yeah. if I can set the scenario up as many times as I can until I find the right um the right model that like will 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 offer that up. Um, but ultimately he's going to find a way to get over. I mean, if you set up a pick from the midbox, he's going to want to go over the top as much as he can anyway, because there's more room and it's a more threatening spot. So ultimately that's what we're looking for but now how can we create it so that that happens authentically yeah you know i can i can try and set repicks, but i can't tell you when i'm going to start the drop the, the the drill i'm going to give you the ball blow the whistle i want you to dodge one direction off the pick and dodge back off, off the pick the other direction like what if he doesn't what if it's not the best option i want him to go with what's best so if he learns that uh, it's going to stick it, and it's not going to be me telling him that going back across the middle of the pick, uh, of middle back across the picks, the middle is better. He's going to learn it when he sees it. Exactly. And they have to learn
0: how to set it up. And they mm-hmm. have to learn how to read and influence a play. Now you've um, obviously your offensive coordinator is John Grant Jr. Uh, you uh, coached some box across with the U.S. box team. Um, you've coached Jeff Teet and obviously thought a lot about, the influence of box across. Um, I want to segue into some thoughts on two man game and how box across sort of impacts your program and your philosophies.
1: Okay. What, uh, <laughs> all right. So category. talk to
0: me about how, um, your thoughts on two man game, um, and, uh, okay. how you, how important is it? Uh, what sort of percentages would you say you like to use two man game versus isolation and, um, how do you teach it?
1: Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to teach it. I think that is such a big category yeah. that I think you break it down to a lot of different specifics. Like, um, you know, you can set two mans to switch matchups. You can set two mans to, or I'll say picks. You can set picks to switch matchups. You can set picks to free Dodgers. You can set picks to free shooters. Um, and then you open up two man stuff, which is not, not specifically pick play, but um, uh, kind of what you and I were, were talking about just before we started this, but how do we get a third guy to the mix? And, and that uh, ultimately, you know, starts to bring in the, the bigger picture of, of, of the whole team concept. So I've never really looked at it specifically as like just two-man stuff as much as like three-man or, um, you know, the, the, the verbiage in our offense is triggers. Like how do we start the offense? And it's really just how do we begin – how do we begin ball movement? How do we begin motion? How do we be, how do we trigger slides essentially? How do we get them going? Um, and a lot of that is uh, is bringing two defenders to the ball. And you do that by setting a two man, not necessarily bringing two bring a pick man to it, but just bringing two defenders to the ball. Sometimes you can swing it away um, you know, before you've used anything um, you know, we use some language um, that separate the pick from the, the mirror, so to speak. So that, um, you know, if, if you're not going to go set a hard one, you're just going to keep a space. And then the most important thing to in that regard is, are the guys understanding their spacing well enough to be able to manage, um, you know, the adjustments that are going to have to be made? Because, again, that can't be rigid. I can go out there day one and I can say. You know, here's cone one and two and I want you guys to space very evenly off of these cones and they'll just keep running off those cones but as soon as you put a defender on ball a defender off ball different spacing the ball swings too quick they're not set up yet like all of a sudden the spacing is 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 a little off um so it's a matter of those guys understanding their relationship together and how to manage like basically both being a threats the whole time and um I don't know, maybe that's a, a broad way of, of answering the, the question for, for, for two man offense, but I don't, I don't look at it as two man offense with us very much, but I, I think it looks that way a lot um, the way we run it. I, I think I've, I've got a lot of questions about um, you know, the, the box style of offense that we run, but I think it's a pretty conventional motion offense um, for field, but um, we have a lot of box concepts in it. And yeah. I mean, junior showed up and he was like all excited to run this two man stuff. And, and, I was like, well, we're, I think we're going to start with this and then we'll transition to this and whatnot. And I think he was really surprised that there was a lot less two-man in it than he was anticipating. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the advantages of two-man, obviously,
0: is um, uh, when you bring two to the ball and you can get that third man, it opens up you know, opportunities to skip it and swing it and mm-hmm. more assisted shots, sticks to the middle, stuff like that. And I know it's all a progr- progress, I mean, a process too where you just gotta like establish some, hey, this is the most important things in our offense. And mm-hmm. I'm sure your offense will look a lot different on in year three than it did in year one, you know, and you'll just be able it to look a lot
1: different in game game five Seven. than it did yeah. game three. Yeah. I mean totally. that was that was part of the learning process there and watching the guys like begin to understand the motion. And you know, there was a there was definitely a turning point to us when we when they were like hey, can we start to overlap this? And I'm like, yeah, there we go. Now we're thinking about it. And they were just like, it seems like it's a little bit better when instead of like, you know, pushing, we just redirect and, and, you know, I can carry over and then I can even throw back if I want to like, right. But the whole point is that you understand the motion together. And then you guys are just spacing to feel like he's going to go the other direction sometimes. And then somebody else is going to have to balance for him. And so you guys have to figure those things out. Like I'll give you the really basic formula, formula of it, but it's not always going to happen that way. Like we were just saying about picks, like You know, he's not like the timing is going to be off on it. Sometimes he's going to get too deep on the dodge. Sometimes he's going to, you know, his hand's going to slip off his shaft and he's going to have to run farther away from the double team. So he doesn't get the ball out quickly. And then, you know, now we're out of sorts and it's really just like, how do we again, break that bigger offensive philosophy down into like little concepts and fundamentals that like they'll, they'll get how to space the offense, you know, when it, when it's working that way, when we're spending that much time teaching, you know, those concepts, they should, They should be able to figure those out. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal. I want them to be able to figure out how to how to space that for themselves.
0: How much um, off ball picks, slips, seals do you guys do in your offense?
1: Not as much as probably it looks, but I think the the point is that you know we want to build the off ball concept, um, you know, as intently as we build the on ball uh, play. Like I think a lot of times the, the the that that gets lost in the shuffle of like you know, the ball is here, the ball is here, the ball's got to do this, then you've got to do that. And I want guys to, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, kind of the, the, the learning keys that we, uh, we identified a few years back was that I want you basically dodging off ball as hard as you dodge with the ball because I want you cutting that hard. And um, again, continually building environments where those, those you know, uh, competitive situations will play out uh, off ball as well as on, I think they start to learn how to space the field and how to cut. And, and I don't, um, you know, I don't think we we set up very much um, off ball. I don't think we set up, uh, you know, scripted picks and screens and uh, and slips and stuff like that. It happens sometimes, but most of the time it's, um, I, I just would say it's a lot less scripted than maybe it, it people would hope it is sometimes.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I definitely noticed um, in the Cornell days how often you guys were cutting with short sticks. I I felt like your short sticks scored more off-ball cutting goals than just about any program I'd seen. And and it's kind of unique because a lot of times middies are relegated to like um, getting into spots, you know, following or floating out the back. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas you guys really seem to be able to get a lot of cuts.
1: I think that's a product of, of, I'm going to keep sounding like a broken record here, but that's a product of those competitive, uh, um, you know, drill work, the fundamental builds that we're, that we're doing team build drills, um, where they're realizing if they're, if they're cutting as hard as they can off ball, uh, with a pole on them, it's significantly easier with a short stick. And so they start, you know, working harder because they know they have a short stick on them. I mean, one of the things that developed of a lot of those, uh, you know, shut off scenarios that we were dealing with and a lot of the um, different zone uh, uh, things people throw at us is that if there's ever a situation where, where, where we have a, a short stick in the crease or or they're shutting a guy off with a short stick, like as far as I'm concerned, that guy's open. So if you, if you got a short stick on you, just put your stick up and we can throw it to you. And it sounds, it sounds a little plain when you say it that way, but I, I think the idea was, you know, don't just consider yourself covered because somebody standing next to you or somebody standing between you and the ball, you know, be able to move, be able to, 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 you know, manipulate that space and, and be creative. And it's just a lot easier with a short stick because he can't cover as much ground. And a lot of times most short sticks are used to being dodged more than anything. Totally. Um, they're less likely to, uh, um, to be the better off ball players. They're not used to picking off passes. They're not used to being in, in, in lanes as, as much and as often. So um I don't, again, I think it's like a product. I don't, I don't always want guys to just revert back to like, well, I got the short stick. I should go get the ball. I'm like, right. you know, you got a short it. stick. I don't need you on the perimeter. Like you're, if you're in front of the goal, like I said, you're, you're, you're pretty much open. So, um, you know, get get a shot off.
0: Yeah. Love it. All right. Let's switch gears to a little bit of defense. Um, coach Kester, um, awesome guy, awesome, uh, awesome uh, defensive mind, and has really created for those coaches out there a lot of amazing content to be checking out. But um, really, uh, really bright young defense coordinator. What would you guys sort of? How would you uh, sort of characterize the way you want to play defense at Hopkins?
1: Uh, he wants to challenge uh, the ball. He wants to challenge defenders. I don't think he likes uh, the other team feeling comfortable with what they're doing, regardless of what that is. I think he wants to. to, to you know interfere so to speak with with their flow with what they're doing um you know that was something that um uh you know we connected on early in the in the process the interview uh, interview process and our conversations and um you know he's a he's a really really well well drilled and schooled in 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 some fundamental concepts that he believes strongly in and, and i think he's really brilliant the way he teaches a lot of those and that was maybe what you just referenced a second ago, one of the first things that jumped out to me is that I I've, I've seen some of his Instagram or Twitter stuff beforehand and I watched it like, that's a great way of teaching it. And and he's, you know, he's really pushing guys and, and, you know, demanding a lot out of them and in some of those like non-competitive situations that we were referring to, like if we're going to get into some fundamental build, like, how do you get, you know, an appropriate off ball stance and some creep steps and some, uh, you know, opening to the ball, the right direction. And how does your stick find the lane and, you know, not that he needs to reinvent the wheel here, but, but finding some really great ways of, of illustrating those concepts and teaching them uh, in a good environment so that when we then, you know, go OD and, and we start, you know, competing at that same concept, like we're working on a, you know, an off ball, you know, spacing drill or something like that, that he's, he's got his guys, you know, uh, taught and shaped up in, in the right way so that, you know, they can get really competitive with that, um, you know, pretty quickly. I don't know. it's, 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 it's a, it's a good mix. I think it between him and junior kind of going back and forth at each other with, uh, with that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it gets a little heated at practice. It's fun.
0: I love it. And with the more competitive you make it, um, you know, the more fun it is, the more, you know, the more heated it gets, I'm sure. And um,
1: you can, you can manufacture that stuff as much as, I mean, you can put a sprint on the line or you can say the loser of this drill gets kicked out of practice. I mean, you can do whatever you want to do. And, uh, and, and, and raise the temperature on it. But, um, you know, that's that's always good stuff when you got the, you know, the whole team watching for a, a one-on-one ground ball and the, the winning team gets to, uh, you know, go right to dinner and the losing team has to run or something like that. I mean, you just come up with whatever you can to get the, the energy up on that.
0: Fun. Um, qu- quick question on the competitive side of things from both sides of the ball. Sometimes I feel like as a coach, we all know that kids like to compete. But sometimes we don't make it competitive for the sake of repping something and accomplishing something. Because when you make it competitive, sometimes they'll figure out a way to win it that wasn't how you wanted them to do it. Um, have you ever experienced that? Does that make sense to you? Or do you just sort of say, hey, listen, we just want to compete. And at the in the end, they'll figure out how to do this.
1: I mean, if the ball goes in the net, you did a great job on offense. If it doesn't, you did a great job on defense. And so if I'm if they're if they're doing that, they're competing at that. They're competing on possessions and and whatever that specific component is. What I'm looking for is a way of designing a drill so that they can learn the concept that I'm trying to separate out, like that I'm trying to, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess I'll say build in. Um, so, like to answer your question, like if they learn how to win the drill, then they're always doing it the right way. Yep. Um, and I need to adjust. I, I, that's probably have more than anything is that they'll go learn how to do the drill. And then I realized afterwards, I'm like, I'm not sure they were really learning the concept I was teaching or I wanted them to learn, but they learned how to be successful. So they got something else out of it. So how do I tweak the drill? Do I need to move some cones? Do I need to change the the lines, whatever, so that we can get this a little bit more. But um, I think there's always a way You know, I, to me, it's like a hard start and a hard stop. And then, you know, put one or two metrics in the drill so that they know what they're being graded on. And then outside of that, like, I need to be able to remove myself once the whistle blows so that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing whatever they, they want to, or they can do to win. What if I am not able to simplify it that much or that well, then I don't think it's a great drill for what what I'm, what I'm looking for.
0: And kids will do things in different ways and have success.
1: Right. Some of them are just—I mean—they're built differently. So some, you know, uh, Jacob Angelus is 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 half the size of Brennan Grimes, but they both play the same position. So they're both going to get to different spots, different ways, and one's righty, one's lefty. So we can do a drill on the right side of the field, and then on the left side of the field. And both—they have to figure out what works for them, not what works for me. Right. And if—and if you know—if they can score every time we're doing a two-on-two drill, I don't care if you ever use the pick or not. You know what I mean? Like yep. I, I would love it if if every time we go, we go run a two-man drill. They go set the pick over here. You take two steps. The guy jumps over the pick and you run underneath it. Nobody touches you. You did a great job. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I like you to learn to use the pick. Sure. But I'd like you to learn how to score every time you have the ball. Exactly.
0: All right. Last, uh, last topic. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting. Um, what are you guys, you know, if you were to sort of just give uh, generalities for the, for the parents and kids that might be listening to this, um, what are you looking for in an attack? And are there positions within positions?
1: Uh, of course, of um, course. I'm looking for the hardest working young men um, that want to be the best teammates uh, that I can find. Um, what am I looking for out of an attackman? He's probably going to have to be, uh, have a better understanding of the game than than most other positions because he he's going to be doing a lot of the decision-making on the offense. He's going to have to, um, you know, be able to move the ball as well as anybody. I don't know if there's any real specifics when it comes to skill sets that are, you know, make or break, I I like to have in our offense, one guy that can play behind the cage, probably be a fairly two-handed player, but outside of that, the rest of the five offensive guys are are somewhat interchangeable. Um, You know, two guys play on the wings. They can be one-handed. I don't care. All the midfielders can be one-handed. I don't care. Um, You know, the guys in the midfield don't have to be able to do everything, but they've got to be able to um, attack the middle of the field and move the ball. And if they do those two things, um, they can be all right. I mean, I, I usually uh, enter all my uh, prospect camps with uh, with a two on one horseshoe drill, and and you know the intro of that drill is that if you can move the ball and and find open space off ball, then you can play offense here. If you can dodge the whole world and get shots off whenever you want them, uh, but you can't pass and catch, then you probably won't won't fit here. So um, that's a big concept. Like you have to be able to play. You have to play, play well with others.
0: Yeah. How do you uh, evaluate that? Um, when, you know, when you watch, um, when you watch club games, especially given the fact that not every club team kind of plays what I would call modern offense. Um, it's more just sort of, it is more stand there and everyone dodge, particularly it's, if it's like no coaching and it's like an all-star yeah. game or a
1: showcase. Sometimes it's miserable to watch and, uh, it doesn't really help you evaluate the players. Um, it's, it's a lot of times more subtle than some of the obvious, like you, you can always figure out who can dodge. I mean, I, I, jokingly i say this all the time i can send my mom to a recruiting tournament she can come back and tell me the biggest fastest guy there who scores the most that's Mm -hmm. not hard um it's really finding the guys that move well off ball that play consistently that don't have a problem sharing the ball even when they know it's not going to come back they just they make good smart plays they make team lacrosse plays it doesn't show up all the time um it certainly a struggle in showcase lacrosse to find it but club teams you know because they don't practice as much together maybe it's a little bit different but some teams have have really good offenses and good coaches and so it does show up. Um, you know, our, our prospect. I mean, there's nothing that compares to like running a recruiting camp on campus and having kids show up and run the drills that you want them to do. And, and afterwards you can, you can pretty well understand whether guys are going to at least have a sense of it or you're starting from scratch. And it, it, there's some guys that just have never had a background like this and some guys have had a ton of it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm just because a guy can pass and catch doesn't mean he's automatically my favorite kid. If he can't, if he's not tough enough to go anywhere near the middle, or if you know, if he can't, uh, if he can't shoot, I mean, there's 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 issues sure. there too. But um, it's it's a little bit harder. It's one of those it's one of those things when it comes to um, you know recruiting that you just got to find a, a you know a, a specific you got to find a specific element of what you're trying to see um, through a lot of the mess. But yeah,
0: all right. Let's so talk a little bit,
1: bit about. Sorry, go ahead. I think everybody's doing the same thing. It's just matter what they like. I mean, I just, I I like the players I like, and some people like the players they like, and most of the time they're the same, but sometimes they're not. That's right.
0: Different values. Mm -hmm. Um, Defensively, would you say that you guys um, have a similar sort of um, look of, Hey, we need, we need a certain baseline of ability to cover, but playing with other people and playing health defense and playing off the ball is a huge part of it as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just as important. I think, probably the way coach K would say it is that it's more important um, than the offensive end that you can play as a group than, than everywhere else. But I think this is, you know, offensively, we're, we're going to emphasize off ball play as much as anything. So I think with both, both sides of the field, finding guys who, you know, can play too off ball, um, finding guys who play good help defense, who recover well, smartly, uh, who communicate in all scenarios, not just obvious and easy ones, Guys who can cover, but I'm not looking at like the beginning, and the end of the game um, with whether he gets beat or not. I'm wondering whether you know he can he can slow play a fast break, whether he can slow play a slow force any force an east west pass as the coaches force an east west pass in a, in a 54, and and you know chances are we can get the fifth fifth guy in. So um, you know a lot of those little things are. A lot of those little things are athletic intuition, a lot of those little things are are, you know, just gamesmanship. Guys, you know, a lot of those things are are basketball drills. And, you know, I I I use that two v1 drill on offense or or we can build up, let's do this. We'll do a three v2 horseshoe drill, which is just, you know, box, box pre-practice drill, whatever. Um, you know, can you uh you know slow play the offense into an extra couple passes if you're doing that defensively? Can you eliminate off defensive players on offense and still move the ball? Um, you know, efficiently and, and those concepts, like I could take that same drill, put you on a basketball court, put you on a soccer field, put you, you know, on the ice. Like it's all the same. It's just sport. Like you know, can you understand how to manage a three-on-two without an endless amount of time? It's basically the same thing across the across the board. So, um, you know, again, back maybe back to the beginning of this, or I maybe mean, this is a good finish of it, but finding a way to break down those concepts and just teach them repetitively. So guys understand the game better um, because they're doing it and because they've done it well. um, And not because I told them to. Yeah.
0: Awesome, Pete. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, telling us about your background, about your philosophies, about Johns Hopkins lacrosse and um, sharing your time.
1: Thanks for having me, man.